0: Good morning. Last week, we went through Matthew's genealogy, and we saw that Jesus is the biological and legal descendant of both Abraham and Judah. And these, of course, are conditions necessary to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, And there are a number of these prophecies. One is in Genesis uh, Chapter forty-nine, where Jacob is blessing his sons, and in the second, famously, is in uh, Second Samuel, where David learns from the Lord that that there will be an heir on throne forever. Matthew's genealogy moves from Abraham to Jesus, and so it really emphasizes the Jewish heritage. There is another genealogy at the end of chapter 3 in Luke's gospel, and that genealogy is different. Instead of moving forward, it moves backwards. It starts with Jesus, Joseph and it moves backwards to uh to Seth the son of Adam the son of God in lower cases it's very different but that genealogy since it goes all the way back to Adam it it stresses that the that the rightful heir is going to be the heir of all created mankind and yet it's not quite that simple that the two genealogies overlap. For example, in Matthew's genealogy that we heard about last Sunday, uh, Rahab and Ruth were mentioned, and of course both Rahab and Ruth the Moabite were Gentiles. So the two genealogies interact and they interact in complex ways some of the names are are not the same you know perhaps suggesting that one genealogy is looking more at at a royal descent a royal pedigree whereas the others might be looking at physical descendants we're not going to go there this morning ex- except to comment that <coughs> Where these genealogies and the in themselves can take us is that the son of Joseph that we're going to be talking so much about this morning is the son of David and the rightful heir to the throne. However, that said, there are many descendants of David who have who could Have become the rightful heir, and yet it was Jesus. There is something that the genealogies cannot do. No descendant of man can do what Jesus did. God had to radically step in to the genealogies, and he did so in the person of the Holy Spirit, and he did so miraculously. And that will bring us to the passage that we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be in Matthew. Again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. We'll be in verses 18 through 25. Uh, You may want to take just a moment and, and turn there in your Bibles. Uh, Largely, we're going to be talking about the birth of Jesus this morning from Matthew's point of view. There is another infancy narrative, and that is in predominantly the first chapter of Luke, and that talks about the birth of Jesus from Mary's point of view. We're going to be primarily looking at the passage in Matthew, However, when necessary, we're going to uh, interact with the passage in Luke as well. The 30-second summary is that in addition to showing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, this passage in Matthew is also going to teach us about the character of his adoptive father, Joseph, and how the birth of Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of prophecy. So, if you would, uh, we'll we'll turn to this morning's passage, which is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. We will begin at verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter. Here, then, is the word of the Lord. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And they called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. The first sentence in this passage really summarizes the entire passage, and we as the readers are not left in any suspense. First, it's the birth of Jesus Christ. the name is the name is really most significant here uh jesus again a little bit of review from last sunday was <clears throat> a historical every name everyday name in palestine uh <clears throat> the the hebrew would be joshua or yeshua and it means yahweh saves so we already know that. Uh, Christ comes from the Hebrew word uh, Messiah, which means anointed. He is the anointed one, again, pointing directly back to David as the anointed king of Israel. So already, the in really in the Greek, the first two words, you know, you know, tell us tremendous about who Jesus is and in fact there's no surprise here the name Jesus in Christ already appeared in the genealogy in verses 1 and 16 and Christ also appeared again in verse 17 so as we begin to trace the circumstances of Jesus birth there is no doubt in our minds the readers as to who he is The situation, of course, will be very different, at least initially, with Joseph. Joseph and Mary were betrothed. Betrothed in ancient times was a contractually binding agreement. It was not like engagement today. In order to break a betrothal required a writ of divorce. And then the passage goes on to say, before they came together, to Joseph, the situation seems really bad. So there's our perspective, we know exactly who Jesus Christ is already. At this point in the narrative, Joseph isn't there yet. So Joseph is really in a quandary as to what to do. And then moving on to the next verse, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The operational word in this verse is Joseph being a just man. The word in Hebrew could equally well, the word in Greek, excuse me, could equally well be translated as a righteous man. And a righteous man is one who upholds the customs and norms of behavior, including especially public service. That makes for a well-ordered civilized society, so again this this describes Joseph at least in secular terms. <clears throat> if we really look at this word because of its importance in describing the character of Joseph, the word in Greek really overlaps three separate words in Hebrew. Uh, and those words uh, really span the spectrum from uh, <clears throat> merciful to just to righteousness. And so all of these words would could adequately be combined to describe Joseph's character here as Matthew is teaching us That it is. To summarize, Joseph is living according to God's standards. Not perfectly, but about as close as it gets. This is the person of Joseph that we are being presented with. But here's the conundrum. Okay. He's betrothed to a woman who is with child. And at this time in history, that was a very bad thing because the Jews of the time believed in the law of Moses. And what we learn from Deuteronomy is this, and I'm going to quote uh, this just, just to show you the severity of this from Deuteronomy chapter 22. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So shall shall you purge evil from your midst. Wow. So here we have Joseph, a just or a righteous man, and, and he is thinking, he is considering, he is praying, about what to do under these circumstances. But God is in control. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so, God is in control, and God's timing is perfect. And in spite of the fact that they didn't have ultrasound in those days, the angel revealed that the child was a male, and that Joseph was to name him Jesus, when I mentioned the two genealogies a few minutes ago, and I mentioned that they were different, the infancy narratives in the account in the accounts by Matthew and Luke are very different in fact, they are. Believed to be largely independent, meaning that Matthew wasn't using Luke or Luke wasn't using Matthew, even so, if we go to Luke's narrative and we go to verse Luke chapter one, verse thirty one this is what the angel Gabriel says to Mary, and behold. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. It's just the same. So you see, you see, even as God is appearing to, uh, even as God has appeared to Joseph in a dream, He has similarly, through the angel Gabriel, appeared to Mary, and He has given both of them the same exactly the same on ambiguous message one more time god is in total control and it's just it's just wonderful to do this jesus was a common name uh <clears throat> there are uh scholars out there who try to figure out how common and i did a little research on that it was presumably maybe the sixth most popular name in first century palestine you know there are other jesuses that that we uh <clears throat> that we hear about you know especially and particularly in in the book of acts and the reason why jesus was such a common name is that it expressed the messianic hope of the jews the the, the 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 hope that that god would raise up a leader and save them as he had in the past but <clears throat> verse 21 says even more than that it says specifically that jesus will save them from their sins so we know more we know what kind of savior jesus is going to be uh, the idea that jesus the idea that the messiah would save people from their sins is not a new idea we we see this throughout the prophets in particular we heard it this morning when when Mike did the Advent reading and he read through Isaiah forty, chapter forty, verse two, and it is also in the uh the fourth suffering servant song in Isaiah fifty-three, six. So we hear we hear throughout the prophets that that the Savior will come to save us from our sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken through the prophet. Matthew does this over and over again. In fact, this is the first of the 12 so-called fulfillment passages in Matthew's gospel. And it's interesting that these fulfillment passages are spread throughout the entire gospel. Matthew's gospel has 28 chapters, and we get the final fulfillment passage in Matthew chapter 27. And just to show the contrast, I'll go ahead and read that for you. This is Matthew 27, verses 9 through 10. You don't need to turn there. Uh, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord had directed me. So it's something that actually pertains to Judas Iscariot in that context. But Matthew uses these fulfillment uh, statements over and over again, and it tells us something in broad terms about Matthew's gospel, okay? Remember, Matthew had a a Judeo-Christian audience in mind, uh, the first or second or maybe third generations of Christians. And so one of Matthew's goals was to show that Jesus was indeed the Messiah to whom the Old Testament prophets repeatedly referred. And that brings us to the prophecy itself. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the first of the fulfillment passages, and it is perhaps one of the more Sadly, in some ways, one of the more controversial citations of the prophets in in Scripture. Sadly, because perhaps for all the wrong reasons, but because of its importance, we're going to step through this with some caution here. Okay. Several objections have been raised to this. The first objection is what is the scientific likelihood? that Jesus is the result of a virginal conception. Science cannot explain everything. We cannot trust the Word of God, the Bible, as the Word of God, unless we are able to believe in miracles. And I will say more about that near <clears throat> near the end of the message this morning. Just a very important fact. We must believe that miracles occurred in biblical times. And it's logical, and we'll work through that. Number two, does a virgin birth contradict the Christian belief that Jesus was fully human? No. More likely, it would suggest that Jesus was half human and half God, which is clearly false. Jesus is fully human and fully God, and we simply acknowledge that that is a mystery that God has not given us as human beings to understand completely. And we'll talk a little bit more about mysteries near near the end of this message as well. Finally, the more realistic the, the first two questions I had to deal with because you know you you sometimes you sometimes will hear that you know when you talk about uh this passage with non-believers But the deeper question is, is Jesus' birth a legitimate fulfillment of this particular passage in Isaiah? The short answer is that Matthew says it does. Moreover, he adds information to this by explicitly explaining that Emmanuel means God with us. That's its meaning in Hebrew when Matthew wrote it, he explicitly explained that to us. But in order to work through this, I think maybe a little bit of history is needed right here. So what was happening at this particular point in time is that, of course, Israel and Judah were separate. Uh, The king of Judah at the time was King Ahaz. there is Assyria and Syria and Israel. And Israel was attempting to align itself with Syria to defend themselves against the threat of Assyria from the north. Uh, King Ahaz of Judah. Tried to short circuit that process by reaching out directly to Assyria. In fact, he what he wanted was for Assyria to attack Syria. It's a it's a bit of a mouthful, and and he wound up dumping a lot of gold from the temple to Assyria to bring this about. In a word. King Ahaz was trusting in the human power of Assyria rather than God. And this is where the prophet Isaiah enters into the picture. And so the Lord instructed Isaiah along with his uh, son, Shirjaseb, uh, to talk to King Ahaz, and the message is that it's going to be okay. God is in control, and if you don't believe God is in control, King Ahaz, go ahead and ask for a sign. While King Ahaz, being a bit arrogant, perhaps even a bit hypocritical, Refuse to ask God for the sign. You know, do not put God to the test, that kind of thing. And so Isaiah, again, speaking as a prophet, said, and I'm going to read this the pertinent verses here. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So it's a real prophecy that's going to occur in in king ahas' time and god is going to step in and do it. We need to rely upon god. We don't we we don't we don't want to rely upon Assyria and we certainly don't want to pay pay Assyria, you know, you know with the with the temple gold. Another important attribute is is the word virgin that occurs here. Uh in the Hebrew the word is actually Elma, which in English would be translated as a maiden. Nowhere in the where Elma appears in the Old Testament, and that word appears about seven times, well, exactly seven times in the uh in the the Hebrew that has come down to us, Biblia, Hebraica, Stuttgartensia, it appears exactly seven times there. But it's when the Hebrew Bible was translated into the Greek, and and this would have happened around maybe the 2nd century B.C. They were a lot closer uh, to the original text than we are today. Uh, <clears throat> the word was translated into the Greek uh, parthenos, which does specifically mean virgin, and that's exactly the same word that Matthew uses in his present passage. So when Isaiah delivered his prophecy to King Ahaz, that's what he intended. But in order to to understand the full significance of this passage, we need to read a little bit more context. So if we move to chapter 8 in Isaiah, we read this, and and now now we're getting it from Isaiah Isaiah speaking in first person in chapter 8. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. The Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Can you see the similarity between those two passages? They're not the same, but that passage is believed to be the fulfillment of the prophecy as it occurred in Isaiah's time. Importantly, Isaiah chapter 8 then becomes a bridge between Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9, which is the passage which really clarifies everything. In in Isaiah chapter nine, nine verses one through seven, we see unambiguously that 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 the Son intended is going to be the Messiah. We read this in service last week. I'll read just one verse to review. Verse 7 reads, "Of we're in Isaiah chapter 9 now, Of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from the time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this, then, is the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Jesus Christ. So this prophecy had a near-term fulfillment, and it had an ultimate fulfillment. Moreover, in the citation, Matthew tells us specifically that Emmanuel means God with us. Importantly, Matthew will end his statement of the Great Commission and he will end his entire gospel with the following statement, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Moving on then to uh, the end of the passage, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So we see, we, we learned a bit about Joseph's character earlier. We see here that he was indeed obedient. Moreover, uh, he did not know his wife until after Jesus was born. That's an important little phrase there because that tells us unambiguously that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And that's all there is. This is Jesus' briefest notice of of. Uh, of the birth of Jesus, uh, it's the birth of Jesus is treated in considerably more detail in the Gospel of Luke, specifically in Luke uh, chapter the first seven chap first seven verses, I believe, of the second chapter of Luke. So, there's some general reflections here. First, God is in total control. We see this over and over and over again in this passage. He sent the angel Gabriel to inform Mary, but he also sent an angel, presumably also Gabriel, in a dream to inform Joseph in a timely manner. Both of them were instructed to call the child Jesus, and angels appear, will appear elsewhere uh, to Joseph as we as we read on into uh, in chapter two as well. Secondly, the virgin birth of Jesus was miraculous the bible calls us to suspend belief in science even though science is a good thing worldly knowledge originating with human beings whenever science would weaken the broad gospel message throughout the bible indeed there are basic questions that we all ask that cannot and will not ever be accessed by science. For example, you know, we've all heard about the Big Bang and we all wonder what was it like before the Big Bang? It's that simple, it's that simple. You know, there's only so much that science can do. It's wonderful, but there's only so much that it can do. And so we have miracles. We've just had the Exodus class. You know, we must believe, for example, that God parted the Red Sea, that he stopped the sun in Joshua, that he backed up the sundial as a sign for Hezekiah, that dry bones came to life when Ezekiel prophesied, Mary was born a virgin, when Jesus, Mary was a virgin, when Jesus was born, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. Paul raised a uh, eucatist from the dead, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. It's all miraculous, all of it. It's all miraculous. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your name is holy. Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. Emmanuel, God with us, may every knee bend and every tongue proclaim that your name is above all other names. May your kingdom on earth become as it already is in heaven. Thank you for your word, and in particular, for today's passage. Thank you for instructing us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Jesus, you have saved us from our sins as we think of the wonderful story of your birth, would you give each of us a renewed heart for forgiveness? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Amen.